Good morning, church. We're in a series, and that part right there, the good news, the good news of God in the crossroad moments of my life, that actually is something uh, that is key to what we're going to be talking through here this whole series. Basically, we're starting the series now and going up through Easter, right up to Easter with it. And we're covering the life of David. And if you, if you grew up in church life, or even if you didn't, you, you know who King David is, and you probably have studied David, the life of David. But oftentimes, we reduce all of the things in David's life to some type of morality tale, some type of, this is a lesson in bravery and courage, or this is, you know, this is David making an epic moral failure, and that, and what, what can we learn from that? And things like that. But if, and that's all there. That's one of the cool things about scripture is that all of those morality tales, all those life lessons, that's there. But if that's all that we come out of the scripture with, we've reduced it below what's actually the underlying foundational thing that God is doing in and through each one of these stories. If we walk out of each one of these things with just a picture of leadership, then, then we've failed. I mean, we, we've totally missed the, the better part of the story. And honestly, a lot of this good news is just another word that you hear around church circles for gospel. Gospel means good news. And gospel, this is just the good news that this good God looked at his people who were broken and separate from him, and instead of giving them judgment, gave them love and acceptance. Instead of, instead of giving them distance, brought them close. That's gospel. And that he not only did that and engaged them on, in that way through Jesus on the cross, but he actually continues to do that in our life. So if you, you know, ask Jesus to forgive your sins at some point down back, back in the day, or if this was two weeks ago or 20 years ago, that wasn't the end of the gospel in your life, that the good news is that God continues to be unfair with you by coming into our rebellion and enabling us to follow him. He's not done with us, and he's going to continue doing this and restoring the entire world around us. This morning, as we're talking about um, on the brink, we're talking about on the brink of a breakthrough, and, and looking at the calling of David and the anointing of David, and uh, this is something that, that is, is massively important. But a lot of times when we think of a breakthrough, we think of vocation. Uh, and, and some type of way that, you know, this person was able to get a breakthrough. And, and actually, the way that they got that breakthrough is that they were in the right place at the right time. How many of you would say that in your current job, a key component to you getting the job that you've got right now was you being in the right place, right time? Okay. I, that's actually a lot of us, okay? All right. And that's, that's something that's, that's really accurate. I mean, like, oh, man, if it wasn't for this person or the fact that I knew this guy who knew the manager, knew the boss, that was how I was able to secure the interview. That's how I was able to, to step in. Or it, it, this guy gave me a chance when nobody else would. Right place and right time is something that we see all across the spectrum. The problem with right place and right time is that it supersedes our ability, Right? Like, our, my ability can be this, but I need to have my ability plus being in the right place at the right time. Economist um, Lester uh, Thoreau was talking about Bill Gates in this regard. Although Bill Gates has as much wealth as the bottom 40% of American households. Okay, let's just hold on and think about that for a second. As Bill Gates has as much wealth as the bottom 40% of American households combined, he has no known talents, IQ, business acumen, Willingness to take risks equal to the combined talents of those 110 million people. There are many other individuals who are just as smart, just as good businessmen, and just as good at everything else who do not have his wealth. Acquiring great wealth is best seen as a conditional lottery. Luck is necessary. Okay, this is a, an economist, and he's like, you want to know what you need? Luck. Luck is necessary. 
One does, not ha- one does have to be in the right place at the right time. Ability is not enough. Which is pretty defeating. I mean, you can work, work your tail off your entire high school career. You can go to the right schools, get the right education, or get the right training and apprentice to the right people, and still never make it because you needed to have this. And that just never was there. And what that ends up doing is it starts driving you into a little bit of self-doubt and insecurity. Well, why not? Why, why is it that I've never been in the right place at the right time? Why is it that I haven't secured that? And it turns you into kind of a self-looking of, why, is, why am I not right? Artist Mike Roy said, you probably felt a little miffed that you weren't in that place at that particular time. Then maybe you would have enjoyed the success that came to that special person who, as the randomness of fate would have it, was just fortunate enough to be chosen. You feel that you're just not good enough to be granted success, that the guardians of celestial karma deem you unworthy of elevation to a higher creative status. Maybe if you continue to whittle away your time in anonymity long enough and do enough of the right things, then you too just might be selected for greatness someday. If I just... You know, maybe, maybe my best hope is just continue trying to do the right stuff. If I just keep on doing the right stuff, then maybe I'll have breakthrough. Now, as much as this is a reality, and all of us would say this is probably a reality in our working world, as people, what we do is we end up projecting this into everything else in life. And we actually run on this myth, and the myth is that I need to be the right person or I need to be in the right circles in order for my life to be happy and successful. And we keep on figuring out what is going to qualify that, that, that happiness or success. You know, if only I had a different job. If only I was married. Or when I actually start getting things straightened out in my life. Or when my grades get up. Or, or when, if I'm ever in an actual relationship. Or if, if this happens, or this, then I'm all of a sudden going to be, I'll have a, a significance to my life. But up until now, it's either not, I'm not the right person or I've been in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm just unlucky. And this is anti-gospel. This is anti-good news. This is suffocating news. Because this news continues to beat the drum of just work harder and life will be good for you. Just, just continue to work and work and work. And if you work hard enough, then the gods of fortune will, will bless you. The gods of relationship will bless you. And that's just not the reality we see in Scripture of how God interacts and engages with humanity. If you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. And what we're going to be taking a look at here is, is that moment when Dave, David, uh, King David was not King David. He's just a kid at this point. This is the first time he's a blip on the radar in, in Scripture. And this is the first time that we all of a sudden get a chance to see him get chosen, him get selected, him actually step into a vocational breakthrough. And, and just we have, there's two things in this passage that I want us just to sink our teeth into and, and see and, and look and see how that might impact the way that we work, whether you're a student, whether you're, you're a stay-at-home parent, or the way that, that you're, you, you are an employer or an employee but, but in addition to that, it'll transcend other things as well. Take a look at chapter 16, starting with verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Okay, pause right there. Just for context, 
Israel has their first king. They switch from a theocracy where they're, they're just basically following God's lead to a monarchy. They, God was not a fan of the monarchy, but the people wanted a monarchy. We want to see someone that we can follow. And, and so the person that they chose to follow was, was that they selected was this guy named Saul. They chose Saul because the dude was tall and attractive. He, and that was one of the big things that, that kings, that was a big qualification. They wanted to look like all the other kingdoms of, of the world. And the rest of these kingdoms in their surrounding areas had some intimidating, tall looking individual that people could say, that's our king. That's the guy that we're following. And so, but throughout the course of, of his, his rulership, Saul continually took God off the throne and put himself there and was disqualified. So the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be a king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Okay, this is very much, this is treason, what, what Samuel's doing here. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me one, the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked him, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, and thought surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. For I've rejected him. The Lord does not look. This is, the, this is so key. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord... The Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, no, not this one either. Verse 9, Jesse then had, um, pardon me, um, not this one. Verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Which is a weird question because he just had seven kids. And, and he's asking the question, is this all you've got? Seven? Really? I mean, I, my question would be like, you've got seven kids? Seriously, man. But he goes on from there and says, so are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. But he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him and we will not sit down until he arrives. The first thing that we can ascertain from this passage about God's dealing with humanity is that, that in the midst of all of this with David, there is this divine choice that blows away and supersedes the way that we would make choices. The way that we would select a king, the way that we would select someone who, who's important in our life, there's, the divine choice is counterintuitive to that. If you're looking for a king, you would not select David. And here's why. David's got a laundry list of reasons why you wouldn't choose him. First off, this guy's got a sketchy family line. The, the, the family of Jesse descends from the, from the family of Judah and Tamar. I don't know if you know the Old Testament story or not, but Judah was this guy who goes off into a city and to find a prostitute, finds, a pro, finds someone he thinks is a prostitute, sleeps with her, and only after sleeping with her realizes, oh, this isn't a prostitute, it's my daughter-in-law. Zing. And out of that family coupling comes this family of Jesse. 
If you're looking, you would say, if God said, you know, go to, the, go to Jesse's family, like, no, I, th- I think we should go someplace else. Let's go next door. Those people have got a way less crazy backdrop than, than the family of Jesse. David is the last in line. Culturally, you've picked the eldest. That's why they start with the oldest. You, you, that's the kid that's got the blessing. That's the kid who's significant. The one who has incrementally less significance is the last born. On top of that, this kid is lacking political experience. He's a shepherd. And he's a kid. He's, he's lacking junior high experience. This is not someone that you're selecting to anoint as the next king. And on top of that, he's got a loser job occupation. Now, different uh, people have, have uh, conflicting perspectives on, on the shepherds in Israel uh, in, in David's time. Some people thought it was an honorable profession because we see God being described as the good shepherd. Jesus was the good shepherd. Good, uh, good kings were shepherds of the people. But it was still an occupation that you would give to the person who is the least in the family. Even though the idea was something that was honorable, anyone who got significant ceased doing that job. Okay, if, if you start, if that, that's entry-level job. It's not something that's honorable. It's certainly not something that's qualifying you to be the king, the president of the whole country. You don't go and drive through at McDonald's and say, hey, how long have you worked here? Like, oh, well, I've been in the drive through window girl for like, like eight months. Seriously, have you considered a run for president? You want to do that because it's a drive through window. And instead of going with the social norms of understanding, this is not a job occupation that would say, yeah, that warrants the next king of Israel. Instead, we have Samuel looking at each one of these things and, and Samuel being just as confounded and, and perplexed by, as anyone else would be, that, that, this would be, that this wouldn't disqualify David. And God says, no, that's the one. Anoint him. Take a look at the next verse. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Anointing, and that, that's a weird word because we don't really throw that around. You don't, we don't anoint stuff all over the place um, anymore. But, but in the Old Testament, anointing was significant. Um, you, you, would anoint, uh, you would anoint a priest because that anointing them, like putting some oil on their head, there was nothing magic in the oil. It was just saying, you are set apart for the work of God to minister to this people. If someone was, was sick, you would anoint them with oil. Not because there was anything medicinally magic about the oil, but because the fact that you're saying, God, I'm setting apart this person for your special work of healing in their life. If, if you were going to anoint uh, an object, that object, would be, you'd have put oil on it and it would be anointed saying, this is something that is set apart. I don't use this for anything during the week except for this one thing to serve God with. And you would anoint kings. And you would anoint kings to say, you are set apart as the king of Israel. You are going to be the one that God uses. And God chooses to use this least individual, which brings us back to the fact that this is a divine choice. This is not David volunteering. This is not Samuel recruiting. David's not getting voted in. This is God choosing him. It's God's selection process. And when we look at that, all of a sudden we can understand how God works. Um, I've told you this story before, but it, it bears repeating. I, when I was in, I, I kind of first got the understanding of God's grace when I was in fifth grade. My parents had, we had just moved to Torrance, California. For the first time in my life, I was um, in a school where I was a racial minority. And um, so this is like early, 
like late 80s, um, right around like 87 to, to 90, right around there. And in that time period, I am like the racial minority. And so whenever I go out to recess, um, I, I was, or in class, I was very aware of the fact I'm the only white kid. But it was cool because these people were all my friends and, all, and we all had a good time. But the problem was that everyone, when we got out to recess, the one thing they wanted to do was play basketball. And the reason was that this was the era of the dynasty of the Bulls, right? And so even though this was something big over here in Chicagoland, that was projected right down to Los Angeles, California, and everyone wanted to be Michael Jordan. Everyone went and got the the white wristband and and just pulled it up halfway up their arm because Jordan did that. And so, I mean, and the only problem with this whole situation was, was twofold. One, a movie had just come out called White Men Can't Jump. And so if you're going to be picked for the team, all of a sudden there's a narrative going on. Oh, you want to know who really can't play basketball? The white guy. Oh, hello, Errol. You happen to be white. Second problem with it. On top of my whiteness, which I could not escape, I stunk at basketball. I could, I, kickball, rocket kickball. Handball, I'm decent. Basketball, awful. And so I was always picked last. Always. And I was cool with that because I'm like, yeah, I kind of, I earned that. <laughs> Until... Until Enrique. Enrique Rodriguez is this guy. He was short, but the kid had hops. I mean, unbelievable hops. And he, and he was able to dribble faster and just do crazy stuff dribbling that no one else in fifth grade could do. And when, fit, when he started to show himself as being like the best, he was always one of the, the team captains. All right, it's going to be Enrique. It's going to be Eric. Okay, you guys pick teams. And when it got to Enrique, Enrique went against the norm. And his first, his first pick was me which ticked everybody off. I'm like, what are, you, what are you doing, man? Including me. I'm like, what are you doing? Are you trying to humiliate me? Like you're showcasing how awful I am by picking me first and making everyone else groan? And yet he would do that. And then on top of picking me, we'd get on the court. And this guy who could shoot from any part, he could shoot three-pointers, he could, he could do layup, anything. This guy, whenever we get right up to the point where he got the ball and everyone's like hoping for him to make the shot, he would do this. He would just pass it to me. And I'd get the ball and I'd just pass it right back. And then you're like, he passed it back. I'm like, no, dude, sure. And then he passed it back and I just passed it to somebody else. And they're like, I'm not passing it back to Errol. And they'd throw it up and they'd, they'd make it. And I would just go, this happened one day and I just swept it under the rug. It happened the second day and the third. And I just went up to Enrique after recess one day. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Why do you keep passing me? You know I stink. And why do you keep picking me? He's like, Errol, I pick you because I want to pick you. I'm, I am, I am, I'm throwing the ball to you so you make the shot, so that you try to make the shot. I'm not picking you because you're better than anyone else. I'm picking you because I pick you. And I couldn't understand that. And I didn't get any better. <laughs> you would, it would be great if the end of the story was, and then I was like making layups and three-pointers, by, but I, I didn't. But the thing was is that it didn't matter. It was weird because, because Enrique was on our team and he was our team captain, we still won in spite of the handicap of me being on his team. When we look at the way that God selects us, when we look at the way that God chooses us, God is not choosing us because, oh, you know what? I'm choosing Rob because Rob is a morally outstanding man. Or I, I, I'm, choosing, I'm choosing Mark because Mark is, is just someone who's got the greatest potential in the kingdom. No, God chooses us against the norm of what we would normally think as far as a qualification. It is his choice. It's his divine choice. But not only that, we also see in this passage the divine reclamation of story, of our story, of David's story. We see in the passage that, that, um, that when Samuel asks, you know, is this all the kids that you've got? In verse 12, he says this, uh, or in verse 11, 
So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. It's almost like dad saying, look, I just want to let you know, you don't even need to worry about the youngest one. He's really young and he's out doing that job. So clearly, I mean, you want to look at the boys again? I'll have them walk right by you again. And Samuel says, is so insistent. He says, no, no, go get him. I'm not going to sit down until you get him back here. And then God says, that's the one. In spite of the fact that he was the youngest, in spite of the fact of his family line, in spite of the fact that he has a job occupation, which isn't a qualifier, God says, that's the one. God takes the story and he reclaims it. Now, there's a difference. If you're thinking about cars or furniture, there's a difference between something that's restored and something that's reclaimed. If you want a car, like a 50s or a 60s car, like a super sport from the 60s at a Chevrolet, if you want that to look amazing, you want someone who knows how to restore that. Because what that person's able to do is this. It shows the skill of a, a craftsman by their ability to return a creation to its original beauty through masking, wear and tear, and hiding or removing the dings and scratches. If you want something to look like it just pulled off the, the, the factory line, you go to someone who can restore something. Someone who can reclaim something. That's a different story, however. See, reclaiming shows the vision of a craftsman to produce beauty out of a creation marred by wear and tear while allowing the dings and scratches to be a part of the final story. This is what God does with us. He does both. He takes our soul, something that is so broken that it can't be fixed, and he restores it. He gives us Christ's righteousness. You're not holy, I'm not holy, but he gives us Christ's holiness. He restores us. But he does it, he does it, does it, he does it by reclaiming our story. He doesn't say, okay, you know what, you're a Christian, so here's the best thing you could do. Pretend like the past didn't happen. Don't talk about it. You did some sketchy stuff. It's cool. Everyone does. Just don't talk about it. In fact, when you go to church, pretend like none of that happened. If you're struggling... Don't show that because if you're struggling and you look like you're down, someone might ask you how you're doing. And and that's like a major, major no-no at church to actually be honest about the fact that you're really doing garbagey right now. No. See, the amazing thing about our story is that we have a reclaimed story. That means that everything is on the table for God's use. Our our, our job, our past, our, our victories, our defeats, all of that are key instruments in what God wants to do to bring himself glory and uh, I was, when I was looking around uh, the internet, I came across this, this um, blog, not a blog, but it's more of a lonely, it's called alonelylife.com. And it's basically a place for people who are really struggling with loneliness to, to just be honest about it. And this is from a guy named Lloyd. He says, I'm 21, I'm a 21-year-old male who hasn't got any friends at all. I've never been out to any social gathering with a group of people my age. As a result of my loneliness, I can't even, I can't see any point of my life. It's affected everything in my life. I've never had a girlfriend, and I have failed all my exams this summer. I don't have any job, and I've lost all of my confidence. The worst part is the night times. I feel so much more lonely at night. I exercise during the day to keep my mind off of it. Teen years and early 20s should be the best years of my life. For me, it is the total opposite. I feel like a waste and useless. That's incredible honesty. And, and, and outside of, of what God is, is actually, the, the reality of who God is and, and his interaction with humanity, this would be the end of the story for Lloyd. I mean, this would be that, that, that's his defining nature. You don't have any friends, you have no confidence, well, that's just your lot in life. Just try harder, do better, and you'll have some significance and value. But instead, the, the gospel says something different. See, God can step in and reclaim stories. And he says, you know what, I call you right where you're at. And I actually infuse all of that 
even the loneliness, even in the difficulty, that's not wasted. It's something that I can use. I don't know if, you've, if, you've, if you're currently in a job that you just can't stand. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because your, your boss might be in here, but it, you might be in a job that you're not super stoked about. You're not excited about this job. Or, you know what, this is just an entry-level job. One day I'm going to have a real job or whatever. And that's, that's all fair game. I mean, all of us want to get to a, a vocation that, that's, you know, firing on, on what we were built to do or what we're, we're gifted at, whether it's managering, managerial stuff or it's, it's, if you're a stay-at-home parent, you know, you're able to rock that. Whatever your vocation is, that's something that oftentimes though, we, we look at, you know, my current job is a waste. If I had a better job, that would be, I would actually have significance. And what we do when we do that is we ignore the reality that God is working right now and this is not wasted. Even if this is not the career you're going to have next year. Even if this is not the career you like. This is not wasted time. Um, a good friend, Eric Wilgen, um, is one of the dis- biggest disappointments of my life. A uh, buddy of mine that went to Moody. Biggest, one of the most effective and gifted linguistic individuals. Uh, he he w- was a linguistics major, which means he studies language. And, and as a linguistics major, Eric was training to be a missionary. He felt God wanted, to be him, wanted him to be a missionary and go and reach people. And we're all, we all, I remember as a, as a, when we'd sit down, the Moody Bible Institute is a place where you have a bunch of like future pastors and missionaries. And we're all like 18 and 19 and we're goofy and we're doing stupid stuff. But we're all like going to be going and doing church work and stuff. So we always would like sit around like, I wonder where you're going to end up, you know, being a pastor. I wonder where you're going to end up being a missionary. And I'm like, it's going to be Manuka, Illinois. I got a feeling. I don't even know where Manuka is, but I got, no, that wasn't, not at all. But with Eric, we always said, what would happen? And you know, where is this guy going to go? He's so gifted. Like I took Greek and, and Eric took Greek. I took Greek and I would study all night long and I'd get a D minus on the test. Eric would study five minutes and get an A. He was just, he got the stuff. And so he could go into a culture and learn the language better than anyone else. And we we're just blown away by this guy. And so right when we all graduated out of Moody, all of us kind of, you know, buckshot out into different ministry opportunities in different states, um, being pastors or interns or whatever. And, and all of a sudden, uh, we're trying to figure out, you know, where did, what, what mission agency did Eric link up with so that he could go out on the mission field? And we found out that he, he didn't leave his home state of Minnesota. Minnesota. He didn't leave Minnesota. Which is a, it's, it's a failure right there, right? But and on top of that, he didn't do anything with his his degree, this degree that, this calling that God put on his life, he ended up, he said, and we said, Eric, what are you doing? He's like, oh, well, I, I, uh, I'm like a manager, I'm managing a um, landscaping company. Wait, what? You're managing a landscaping company? Yeah, like I'm mowing lawns and stuff and working with employees um, in Minneapolis. I'm like, Minneapolis, Minneapolis sees grass like three weeks of the year. How, wh- how is this even a career? It's like, oh, no, it's good. I like needed some cash and this is what I'm doing all right, man, whatever. I'm like, man, what, what? why is he like walking away from his calling? And then we found out that he changed careers. We're like, yes, finally, he's stepping into the call of God on his life. We're like, what are you doing, Eric? Oh, I'm a bus driver. What? Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm a bus driver. What are you doing? Well, I drive buses. No, no, what are you doing? Like, why are you, bu- why are you driving buses? You are a ling- you're a linguistic genius. God can use you and you're driving buses, these big old vehicles. Why in the world are you doing that? What the, the biggest disappointment. Eric Wilgen today is one of the missionaries that we support as a church. You know how he got there? He decided, after years of doing these different jobs, that he was going to go over, not with a mission agency, but solo. He was going to go over solo over to Africa 
And he was going to find the places that missionaries wouldn't go, that mission agencies wouldn't dare send their missionaries. He was going to go deep into the bush where people don't speak English, and he was going to try to get people who could speak these languages and connect with them and live in these huts and live with these people and get to know them and and love them and to communicate the gospel to them. And so he goes on over there, he comes back, and he raises support. And he realizes that he's able to go for a lot less money than any other missionary and the reason that he knows that is because if you, if you go through a mission agency, you have to pay for a lot of other stuff, like, like some of their office stuff and, and uh, insurance and everything else. Eric was like, I can go for way cheaper than, than every other missionary has to raise. I can go quicker and faster, and I could have fewer supporters and, and get the job done. And you know how he was able to do that? Because he picked up managing skills being a landscaper. He would not have known how to handle and finance money and, and organize money the way that he did unless he was in that job. And he actually is going to places that you can't get to. You can't hike there and you can't just like ride a camel out there. You have to get there with these vehicles and these off-road massive vehicles. Think like Raiders of the Lost Ark, like big old um, massive like trucks, those, those type of trucks. They go through these, they're able to go through gullies and over like Land Rover type stuff that are bigger than that. But because he doesn't have a whole lot of money, he has to buy vehicles that are lower grade vehicles that need work. And he actually could do the work on these large vehicles. You know how he could do the work on those large vehicles? Because he was a bus driver in Minneapolis and he learned in the garage how these guys operated with each one of these buses that they were working on. Every moment of his life was a key sacred part of his calling. And I would tell you this, which time was Eric doing God's will? As a missionary in Africa that he is today or in Minneapolis driving a bus or mowing a lawn? He was doing God's will in both. And he was fulfilling a sacred calling in both. That's the divine reclamation of our story. That's how God works. In 1 Corinthians, we see this. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, are, that are so that no man may boast before God. It's almost as if God is choosing us and reclaiming our stories to show how amazing he is. And it is amazing how he's able to step into our brokenness and into our, the areas of, of just separation that we have. And he's able to step into it. So he's able to look at this. And this may be a reality in getting a job. Right place, right time, totally. Or right, right place, right time, right me. But the gospel speaks into the, the whole of our life in a different way. It actually flips it around. And instead, we see what Jesus has done. Jesus has made me right. It's not me getting right enough for God, me getting right enough to deserve blessing. Jesus has made me right. And because of that, every place I go is the right place and right time for significant service. Every place that I go is not some place that's just waiting, a waiting room for the next thing, which is really my ultimate calling. Right here, right now, right in the place that I'm at, right in the job that I'm at, that's the place that I'm supposed to be. It's a place that I can actually live out and, and, and do the work that God wants us to do. And as encouraging as that may sound, this is a massive confrontation of our excuses. Because you and I, we tally up excuses, like massive amount of excuses, to disqualify ourselves from doing God's work. We go like, okay, that's like for like the really, really super Christians to like to look at their their job as, as sacred. Or you know, it's really what it is, is it's the people that are pastors and missionaries. That's sacred work. You know, there was this ex-monk named Martin Luther. And he married this ex-nun. And this ex-monk and this ex-nun got married and they started having kids. And Martin Luther and his wife, who worked in convents and monasteries, 
as they started having kids, he, he makes this comment. He says, you know what? A dad changing a diaper is doing more holy work than the work that's done in all the monasteries and convents in all of Europe. And what the point he was trying to hyperbolically make is this. You have no idea how sacred your job is. Whether you work at home, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you're doing a job that other people just think is not a big deal, you have a sacred work. Whether you're a plumber, a painter, or a pastor, you have sacred work. And that is something that he's called upon you. And so the breakthrough is not one day I'm going to have this awesome opportunity to step into a great job, or I'm going to have this awesome opportunity to to experience retirement fully loaded with the ability to live the life the way that I want. But instead, the breakthrough is saying, I'm going to allow God to speak into this part of my life right now as someone who is called, who is anointed. Here's, Here's a key thing with that. Jesus was called the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the Greek word for, for the Hebrew word Mashiach. And Mashiach means anointed one. David was anointed by God. Jesus was the anointed one by God. If you have given your life to him, he's not only given you his holiness and taken your judgment, he's also given you his anointing. You are called, you are chosen. And that means that everywhere you go, you have the opportunity to speak into that calling. If you're a student, a high school student, junior high school student, when you sit in school, you're sitting as one who's anointed for God's work, if you're in him. In your occupation, whether it's at home or it's, at, it's someplace else, you are called. Now, if this is going to be something that's a defining reality for us and a breakthrough for us, there, there's a couple things that have to happen. The first is, if you're someone who's yet to make that decision, you've yet to say, yeah, I, I want to step into I realize my absolute need for God, and I have been living on the outside. There is no good news in my life as far as God is concerned yet. Well, then the first step is choosing to step into the choice of God. Because we could look at David's calling and say, well, David didn't choose God. God chose David. And scriptures talks about how God chose us before the world was created. So if God chooses me, then I guess there is no choice, right? No. Scripture paints this really weird picture. It's like we're walking towards the door of salvation. And on the front of the door, it says Acts 16, 30 to 31, which says, when when a person's asking Paul, you know, how can I be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus. Put your trust, go all in on Jesus, that he can forgive your sins, that he can restore you, and you'll be saved. And so as I'm going towards the door, I'm like, I'm making the choice. I'm making the choice to ask Jesus for forgiveness. I'm making the choice to say, I want you to lead my life from here on out. I'm turning away from my past and I'm giving my life to you because of what you did on the cross. I'm choosing you. But as soon as we walk through the door, we look and we see on the other side of the door, John 15, 16, which is Jesus saying, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So is it the us choosing God or God choosing us? Yes. I can't explain it. I can't quite wrap my brain around it, but all I know is that God has chosen us. And, if you, and the, the, the bigger question is, how do I know if I've been chosen? You know that if you're, you, you've been chosen by God, if you have a desire to surrender your life to Jesus, to ask him for forgiveness, that's going to be a leader of your life because that's not natural. That's not normal. If you have this, something inside of you, even as I'm talking, that's leading you towards that, I would say there's a good, good probability that God has chosen you and he's calling you to take that step, to choose to step into the choice of God. 
Secondly, surrendering your backstory and current circumstances to his repurposed calling. If you're a Christian, you might have been the type of Christian that said, well, um, God, has, God has just probably totally taken over my life and he's restored it. So I'm, I'm not the type of person should, who should have any baggage from the past. I'm not the type of person should, who should have any struggles in my present day life. But instead, you can actually surrender that and say, look, all of my current circumstances, my job, everything, it's all on the table for you to use. It's all a picture of what you're doing in my life. And thirdly, Allowing God's choice and God's calling to enhance the way you engage your vocation. Colossians 3.23 talks about how we don't work towards, for mankind. So if you work at McDonald's, you're not working for McDonald's. You are working for McDonald's. They, they're giving you a check. But your ultimate work that day when you show up to McDonald's is working for God. If you work at ComEd, you're, you're, you work at ComEd. They give you a bill. They give you a check. But, but your ultimate work is not working for ComEd. It's doing the job you have at ComEd for God. If you're a student, if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, your ultimate work is not working for these people that you're around. It's actually doing work, serving these people, but you're working for God. And when we realize this, this doesn't make us more lazy. It actually makes us more diligent workers because he's dignified our work. He's made it sacred. You have a sacred calling in the job that you have, whether it's a high school student or it's a retired individual, or a stay-at-home parent. You have a sacred calling. And so here's the crazy thing that I want to I challenge you to. Here's like two assignments for this week. The first one is a, a little bit scary. The second one is very scary. So I'm just telling you, buckle up. First one, I want to encourage you to ask yourself, what would be different? Just ask yourself this question. You can ask yourself this now. Ask yourself, what would be different in the way I worked this week, this coming week? What would be different in the way that I worked if I believe that today was a sacred calling? Which means that you may be someone who's looking forward to a different job, but you're actually today, you're not working in today when you're working for your boss or you're working with these employees. You're not working today as, as saying, oh, I just can't wait to be someone else. You're actually going to work today as if today is a sacred calling. Tomorrow, you might be at a different job, but today is a sacred calling. What would be different about the way that you worked if you looked at it as a calling from God? What would be different in your attitude? The way that you talked to people? The way that you thought throughout the day? The way that you left your business? The quality of your work? What would be different in the way I worked if I believed that today was a sacred calling? And secondly, this is the sketchy one. (laughs) This is where you actually, the rubber meets the road here. Tell a boss, teacher, manager, spouse, employee, whatever, I'm going to work differently this week. Would you please tell me if you notice a difference? Tomorrow, what if you started the week out? You're a stay-at-home parent. What if you talk to a spouse or a kid? All right, I'm going to operate differently this week, and I just want you to tell me on Friday if you notice a difference. If you don't notice a difference, no sweat. You go into work, and, and you go to your boss and, or your manager and say, listen, I'm, uh, I'm going to operate differently this week. I'm going to work differently. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to improve some stuff. Would you tell me if you notice a difference? Or if you're the boss, tell another employee. If you're a student, you can go up to a teacher. This is going to be really weird. But you go up to a teacher and say, okay, I'm going to like be in class differently this week. And I just want you to tell me by Friday if you notice a difference. Now, if this like comes across weird, just blame me, okay? If, if the person's looking at you and they're like, what? It's like, oh yeah, my, this is something that my pastor told me to do. He's an oddball to say the least. And so just, it just... It, humor me. Would you do this for me? It's just like an assignment that they gave me at church. Do that this week. And if you do that, I want to encourage you to let us know what happens. You know, post it on Facebook, shoot me a message to say, okay, I, I actually did this and it was weird. 
but this is what happened as a result. This is what my boss said. This is what my teacher said. This is what my spouse said. Actually take that into light. In closing, I just, the, the reality that we have um, in God is we, we realize that the connection we have with God makes a bold statement about us. But the bolder statement it makes is about him, that he's called us, he's chosen us, he's called us into something that's deep. He's called us into something that, that's, that's, that's deeper than, than, the, than the, the normal everyday life that we're, we, we normally take as what, what we should be doing in life. And it also gives us a reality that he has repurposed and reclaimed our story. And so when we realize this about God, that God looks at us that way, it tells us how good he is and how trustworthy he is and how worthy of giving our entire life to. You experience that and you will experience the breakthrough that you would not believe. Let's start that today and let that continue on as the way our life rolls from here on out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the good news um, communicates the fact that we don't deserve, but you give anyway. The things we deserve that, that are negative, you've taken off of us. And Lord, I appreciate the fact that you allow that to not just um, remain in our job, our state of life, but you actually let that flow into every aspect of, of our world from our salvation to where we go on Monday. Lord, I pray that you help each one of us understand your higher calling and the sacred calling you put on each one of us and that we could respond in boldness because that that bold statement you're making about us communicates the grace and the truth and the love that you have. You are a good father who loves us so much. Lord, let us walk the type of trust that reflects that reality. And we'll give you thanks for that. Amen.